Voyager. Season 4 we have encountered the Borg, Elizabeth, Lindsay, and Will. Continue the theological discourse through the Delta Quadrant. Resistance is futile. Irrelevant. Your appeal to my humanity is pointless. I can't be sure, but I think there's more going on here than just a simple hello. Well, I think it's time we get back to our bridge. No argument there. Voyjourn, Season 4. Greetings, friends. It's extraordinary to glimpse you by the trunks this time as we clash once again with Voyager, Season 4. And this episode is a most interesting one because we find um, Chakotay's shuttle has been hit by enemy crossfire and he's crashed on a planet in the midst of a war. As one side befriends him and attempts to help him locate his shuttle, he finds himself quickly taking sides. When captured by the other side, he is reminded that every army has its own story. And I would add to that, every culture has its own story. I got a lot out of this episode. I really enjoyed it. And and I think I enjoyed the most about this episode was what they did in terms of working linguistically. I think that's the thing that really captured my imagination is that we have this universe that's constantly providing us with alien and cross-cultural and interracial experiences. And yet, even with an English translator for the universal translator, we end up with the same parsing and understanding. Um, And so the subtle shift in language in this was something that I really enjoyed. It's probably why I really enjoyed Firefly as well and was very disappointed that I think probably for reasons of language that people just didn't get into it and it was cancelled after the first season. I quite liked um, the language uh, aspect of this as well, Will. I thought it was quite interesting the way they'd adapted English into something that was sort of Shakespearean or Chaucerian, you know, with the way they um, manipulated different uses of nouns and, and verbs. But it all made sense, but it also helped set it all apart. I found it difficult to watch at times, and I wouldn't say it ranked as my favourite episode, but certainly it's right up there in terms of issues worth thinking about. It was really, they wanted a thinky episode, I think one of the writers described it, and they certainly got that. I, I would yeah. agree with that, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, and I, and I mentioned it before, but um, the, the work that was done on the Firefly series to produce a completely different linguistic understanding, and in other places, I mean, we see, see similar kinds of things in The Expanse, um, in its amalgamation of different languages, in Dune, uh, both in the novel and movie series, an expression that actually takes into account that there is a change in language and linguistics over time. I mean, we no longer say, do you bite my thumb at thee, sir? And we, we don't talk about how vexing our day was. And, and that's only a short period of history and language has changed so much. Yeah, it does. Um... And I also think it it kind of, for me, situated it, not consciously, but back in a medieval kind of era, that's what I felt, even though they had all this technology, the way they were dressed, the the language that was used, it, it just said to me, like human medieval times. So I found myself situated, at least unconsciously, back in that period, which I thought differentiated it. And there were so many other things that, that they used in terms of the makeup and the costuming this time to really emphasise some of the similarities and dissimilarities they wanted to make was actually quite clever. I always look up the synopsis, at least in part, so I know if it's going to terrify me. 
but I had a picture of the um, I can't remember their name. The ones who've got the teeth on the outside. The um, Craden. A Craden. There's a picture of a Craden. So the fact that Chakotay has fallen among very humanoid-looking aliens tells me the nemesis is this picture I've got in front of me, the yep. Craden, and it's very bestial. So I'm assuming from that there's a lot of deliberate othering going on in yeah. this episode and that we're going to find that the others are going to say exactly the same things and they're going to be presented in this beast-like way to reinforce the stereotype, but I'm going to be surprised at the end, despite what Chakotay goes through, if they're really actually like that. So that was my thinking as I watched it. I did fall for the simulation because I didn't know that was a simulation until it was said at the end and the doctor says, you'd think your mother was a turnip, it's been done so well. Because that fooled me and I'm starting to think, well, maybe they really are awful. And I had visions of the Holocaust because it's talking about them going to be exterminated. And I thought, well, we know there was one group of people on Earth that were prepared to do that. There could be aliens prepared to do that. And then suddenly you're shocked back into another reality when mm. the doctor says it's all a simulation and it's all this very clever use of chemicals and uh, watching simulations and, you know, the language and the whole thing he bonds with. And that just really shocked me at the end. I was not expecting that, Lindsay. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things for uh, Star Trek fans is that the Craydon look very similar to um, uh, what, what's the uh, species that... Um, that the the Norsicans, yes. Right, they, they look very similar, and so I think for people who've watched that, they also look quite similar to the Predator in the movie Predator. Mm. So I think that naturally brings those senses of, of these are these are dangerous beasts uh, to to mind, and in a way that is then also uh, done by the propaganda and the and the fact that the Bori talk about them as beasts and terrible creatures. There's a lot not to like about the appearance of the Kraden. Um and yeah. I, I wondered as I was looking at them, you know, uh, Lindsay, you often said that uh, you hope that somewhere in the galaxy there might be expressions of love, intimacy and affection that doesn't involve lip mashing. I don't think uh, I'd like to kiss a Kraden. Uh, and I, I wondered whether we could have a scene where we had a romantic interaction between two Cradens, so we could just see perhaps what it is that they do. Maybe they um, they flick their tusks at each other or something. But um, <laughs> it certainly gave us the impression that we are are not to like them or to feel safe with them. Um, and uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating thing how appearance can actually can create that unconscious bias. Well, I think we're hardwired to respond to certain things like fangs and tusks from our very primordial DNA because anything with fangs and tusks represented some sort of threat to our well-being. And I think the way the Kraden have been made up with, you know, what looks like little tusks or fangs actually is meant to trigger that response. I thought in terms of othering, that is presenting something that you are not immediately going to feel sympathetic with or identify with, was quite clever. Well, that was the way I responded to it. And the fact it was so obvious also was to me an alert to say, maybe you should not be fooled by this. Um, it's so other and it's so meant to provoke a sort of flight fright kind of response in me that, you know, probably at the end I'm going to be surprised by something even though I was taken in by the simulation. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when we think about that hard wiring that you've mentioned, Elizabeth, and how we're evolved to think certain ways, because, of course, it's entirely, you know, a product of our own uh, evolutionary upbringing. And, and if I was someone else, you know, if we had uh, sentient cows or deers on our planet, I wonder if they would look at uh, bipedal forms with opposable thumbs and immediately respond, oh, those terrible omnivorous big brain predators that are killing us whenever they get near us, you know, and have the same sort of visceral response to us uh, as we might to jaws and things. I'm sure they do have that response, Lindsay. I was really keen to have a talk about in terms of othering. We're often very quick to talk about the experience of the exclusion of the other or the vilification of the other. But in this episode, I loved that Chakotay was also the other and the whole purpose of this soul thought experiment that they were running was to actually bring the other into their side against their their nemesis or the enemy. And so the way they did that was that they used language that uh, Robert Beltrain did a really good job of subtly picking up slowly. He didn't suddenly just glimpse it and decide that within the trunks this is the way he would clash but he actually kind of slowly but surely started to add the words and I wondered about that with our church communities whether or not part of the way that we uh, indoctrinate people into our communities is by using language that's actually entirely foreign to the world they live in and they demonstrate their willingness and commitment to wanting to be a part of our community by using the language we use and showing the actions that we use. I think that language also, though, could scare people off. I mean, if it's, well, it's more than just language. Language is part of it. You know, a for him sandwich is really a quaint and arcane thing that, you know, if you are not used to it, would find, I think, rather strange. But our church language that we take for granted, even things like confession or when we talk about praise or worship we know what these words mean in theory if we're an unchurched person but to actually have them deployed in a church in the way they're used may still be i think a a quite a foreign exercise for people um my 30 odd year old daughter brought her granddaughter to a church service when i was in wa because daisy wanted to come to a church and bryony said well when grandma gets here you can get her church and bryony came quite a few times and i thought well here i have this suspect here i took bryony diligently with her brothers to sunday school but as adults had not set foot in churches and i said to bryony how did you find it because i thought we had a reasonably informal friendly kind of service and she said mum it's just weird and i said what's weird about it and she said the first thing is the music you've got these hymns or whatever they are you're singing this stuff and the words never fit to the tune. So that was the first thing she said. She couldn't understand why you do that. And then she said, then you've got lines on the screen and then you've got other lines on the screen and you say it backwards and forwards and I don't understand what's in there and I don't get the point of doing that. Mm. And then she said, then someone reads a few lines from the Bible and then somebody gets up and says a whole lot about it. What is the purpose of that? What am I meant to take from that? And I thought that really pulled me up by my socks, Mm. having this unchurched person who my daughter never holds back, trust me, who told me exactly what she thought about it. She was happy to bring Daisy if Daisy wanted to go, but to her it was foreign and pointless. Mm. I I think it's an interesting uh, kind of line that we walk here too because I think 
you know, if I think about uh, the way I approach things, I really do want to explain a lot of the stuff that we do and, and make sure that someone who is new to it understands, you know, why we do what we do. But on the other hand, sometimes have just little bits that don't go too long that I'm happy not to explain because I think there is, in fact, an element of feeling good about understanding and learning what the community does. So, you know, it might be like a, a quick response, like, you know, saying thanks be to God at the end of the, you know, confession and reminder of forgiveness or whatever. And sometimes I won't explain or have those things written down in the bulletin or whatever because I think it's short enough that someone's not going to feel really left out if they don't say it the first time. But if by the second or third time they know to say it, I think there's actually a feeling of it does create that sense of, oh, I'm part of the tribe. I know mm. what we say here, you know, in, in, a, in a good way. And I think we see that with Kokote learning to engage in this yeah, language. and that's exactly the process they use to indoctrinate him into the community. Um, even from the very beginning, that first scene where he's been captured and the person who captures him gets a dressing down from the other person. So he's defended and included in the community. The questions are asked, you know, who is our nemesis? Only the Kraden. And, and so there's this idea that if you're not against our enemy then you can be included in our community but if you do anything that makes you sound or look like our nemesis then you'll be excluded and so this very adversarial world where we have insiders and outsiders does actually get used within church circles we talk about uh, believers and unbelievers we have the misuse of passages that talk about those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell um you know so there there is this kind of adversarial duality that's actually inherent in our language that we i think we have to be very careful of well, it's not inherent in my language i have to say the terms i really avoid heaven and hell and and talking about things like believers and unbelievers i prefer to talk about churched and unchurched I don't know at the level of belief that a lot of my flock would be in. I expect there's quite a spectrum of it. And some would go for heaven and hell and probably most wouldn't. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as clear cut as it used to be. But I still think that it's difficult for people to necessarily assimilate easily if they've really come from a background that has no church kind of going in it into mm. what we don't think about mostly. We just take for granted the service will have a certain shape with certain words and do certain things. And, you know, for someone coming in, one of the members of our congregation that came because he was invited by a workmate has also invited people to come. And he said to me, oh, they just find it too heavy. They don't come back. Now, I need to unpack with him because that was a passing conversation, exactly what he means by too heavy. I'm suspecting it's laden with God language and stuff that they don't necessarily understand and that's what it means. But if that is the case and we're frightening people off because we're looking like the Craden, we probably need to do something about it. I think also that there's a sense in which the community at large, which is now largely not churched, isn't very quick to differentiate between our different brands of church either. Um, and so... There are some very Creighton-like examples of Christian spirituality that exist out there that we look like sometimes, 
and that that people might just assume they might look at us and go, nah, if it's that, I'm not interested. As the church, we have committed some serious atrocities to quite a lot of people. And so people have an immediate gut reaction, just like we do to those uh, thorny-faced Craden when they see us and they see our liturgy. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you, Will, although I do want to pull you up on your thesis language, you know, <laughs> talking about being Craden-like, when, when actually the Craden might be a wonderful, civilised, uh, you know, group of people who, who never do anything wrong. Well, you're left wondering with that, aren't you? Because by the end of it, I'm thinking, who do I believe in this mess? Because what made the propaganda so slick in the Bori, you know, what was going on that they felt they were fighting this battle? So the Craden can't be, in my opinion, entirely innocent here, but we actually don't know the extent to what they have fought and how they've fought. We've never really told that. All we know is poor old Chikade's thinking his mother's a turnip and he's having a bad day not hating someone that he's been indoctrinated to hate. I think for me the telling thing is, well, there's two. I mean, firstly, when Chicote says to Janeway, so they don't do all these things, and she says, I don't know. But then I think for me the, the real kicker was when the Kraden uh, refers to the Bori as my nemesis. Yes. And I think for me that's the hint that this is a mirror image thing and that they both, are playing this game of othering and are probably of doing terrible things and portraying the others as doing terrible but, things. But there are clear indications in this episode as to which side we should take. I mean, clearly the Craden appear bestial and frightening, and so we, we can't side with them. We, we must side with the people who look like us. And there, there is that sense, I think, as Elizabeth said earlier, that we're, we're hardwired in some ways to actually to pick things that historically or even genetically have been a threat to us and actually decide to naturally trust some over others. One of the things that threw me, though, and I, I wondered about the Craden, was why they used the psychotropic nature to make Tuvok look like a Craden. It, it seemed to me to be a strange moment that, for whatever reason, something about what Tuvok had done or how he'd arrived in the area had actually made him display in that way so so the inconsistency in my mind for, for the storyline in that was do the Craden actually look the way the Craden look and it would have been much more interesting but their reveal would have been harder to do if the Craden didn't look all that different to the people who are the Vori who are actually down on the planet and that the whole thing was a psychotropic adjustment of, of propaganda oh that's a really interesting point I hadn't thought of that I mean to me the whole Tuvok looking like the Kraden was simply because Chakotay was so programmed at this time to see anything different as Kraden. That's how he perceived Tuvok when he came through. Uh, Chakotay, sorry. He perceived Tuvok when he came through in that way. And it took a bit of convincing for that to drop away and mm. him see the real thing. I guess for me it was when the ambassador presents to Voyager, there's no reason there. That would have been the reveal, Will, if That's there was right. going to be re the reveal, and there wasn't. The Craden looked like the way they were presented. So I wasn't thinking that, you know, they're actually looking like the Bori who've passed mm. them with a different image. That's how they look. Yeah, and I think if they had have done that transformation in reverse when Chakotay sees the ambassador for the first time, it might have been an interesting 
yeah. way to to push their story a little further. And and I guess they maybe they didn't think of it because they're not as smart as we are. <laughs> or they ran out of time. I, I think one of the really fascinating things for me in in what you've talked about, Will is that that sense of tribalism and of othering uh, someone else, it's not just about claws and jaws and whatever, you know. I mean, if I meet a a person that looks like a saber-toothed tiger, I can kind of understand why I might have a response. But I think the, the, the really telling thing is that I might have the same sort of othering response just because someone has a different skin tone to me or because someone has a different hairstyle to me or because someone uh, it has uh, tattoos that I Or a disability. Or yeah, exactly. I think that's right, Lindsay, and I think that there's all sorts of things that, you know, people are afraid of the homeless when they see them lying around. There was a whole spate of attacks on Muslim women at one stage when we were having... Um, ISIS was doing horrible things and, you know, setting off bombs everywhere. So Muslims in Australia, because women have that visible sign of wearing a veil, Mm. they were easy game and they were attacked because they were different. The whole demonisation of brown-skinned boat people, I think. Mm. Um, You you can't come here by boat. Well, I reckon if a whole lot of New Zealanders found their way here, it wouldn't be the same thing at all as Sri Lankans coming here. So I think we do othering all the time. Oh, and our situation with refugees from people, places like Ukraine is a good example of that too, where the people look more like us. We find it easier to support them and to be engaged with them. I I thought that that, uh, the situation in Ukraine and Russia had some really interesting things um, around this too, that that you could quite easily listen to a narrative that says that the... uh, the government of the Ukraine persecuting Russians on their side of the border was creating greater tension, which left it impossible for Russia not to act to defend its ethnic people who are actually on the other side. And so they had no choice but to send troops across the border to prevent the atrocities that were taking place within the borders of Ukraine is a narrative that's being sold within the, the Russian nation. Uh, and many Russian people are, are believing that I'm believing a different story, but if I'm really honest with myself, I'm believing it because of information that I'm receiving on my side. And so I, I actually have to, have to really do a lot of more work to be able to say, well, what is the real truth behind this story, and and who is benefiting, and who is affected, and and what are the the larger global issues that are taking place here. I'm reminded, uh, Will, by your your comments about uh, Ukrainians and and how we might view them that uh, one of the things that's interesting is that it's not just visual cues that, that um, uh, drives us into this sort of uh, othering thing. Uh, it can also be um, audio and uh, uh, verbal cues. So, for instance, you know, in movies, if we do encounter a person who speaks English with an Eastern European accent, we tend to automatically see them as, as, as the bad person, you know, um, after, after all the movies that came out of the Cold War sort of context, uh, you know, so, so we'll hear that accent and we'll go, oh, they must be the bad guy, you know, because uh, they speak with an Eastern European sort of accent. Yes, well, a lot of Bond villains, you see them as stroking their cat and looking for world domination and speaking with a very Eastern European accent. So I think that's right. Uh, particularly during the Cold War, I think there was a lot of that going on um, and setting up that kind of 
propaganda fear response in the rest of us. I mean, for me, this took me not to the current situation, though I, I grant you will, we can see this situation there. Because they talked about exterminating old people and going to these chambers, it took me straight back to the Holocaust. And I found that was where myself, where there was a, a, a number of a race, I won't say the entire German nation, that would be stupid, but a number of people within that nation who had the power to actually look at causing genocide to another race. And there was no hope of that race ever being able to fight back. The most you could hope for is you could somehow get out of Germany or you could escape and um, otherwise, or you'd be hidden by someone and hidden successfully enough, you weren't discovered for the length of time the Nazis were in power. And, and that's where I found myself thinking, well, this can actually happen. It isn't just a myth. It isn't, and of it, course it comes about by othering, but when the power is so lopsided as it was in the Holocaust, um, you know, you start to think about what humans are actually doing or the extent to which othering can go where you actually try and destroy and wipe out an entire race of people. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree um, that that othering is really interesting. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm led back to where Will started us off, which is that, in a sense... This whole story is of Chakotay being sucked into yeah. that, you know, from from a position where he he didn't originally have that that uh, view of uh, the the Creighton. Uh, In fact, he didn't even know the Creighton existed. Um, and and it, so it's interesting then to put it back into that historical context and think, you know, if you um, you know move from uh, Holland or something like that uh, into Germany. Uh, how how would you be taken down the route of getting to the point where you were willing to uh, watch what was going on and, and, and feel that that was okay uh, and, and that that was appropriate? What, what's the what's the mechanism for drawing someone into that tribe to the extent that they will then you know be a willing participant in something like genocide? And I think that's the hardest thing in relation to all of this is that, that grooming um, is actually a tool used both to create inclusive community and to in, engage people uh, in cultural factors um, and, and to help people to feel a part of what's going on and also a tool that's used to abuse people's trust, to draw people into... Um, hatred to increase unconscious bias and to disarm us from critical thinking. Um, and, and so it's the same techniques that are actually used by um, the, the, the welcomer and the abuser. Um, and, and so that begs the self-awareness question for me is, how do I know um, what I know and, and, and how do I ensure that, uh, that I, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding the information I'm being given in a way that actually uh, provides me with a with with I guess a positive narrative rather than the negative narrative. Well, if you're immersed in it, I think it becomes incredibly difficult, and we see that being carried out through the character of Chakotay because by the time he's watched people like the old man, the grandfather of the child, and then the child herself being marched off to be exterminated, you know, he's convinced he's dealing with this 
conscienceless, you know, bestial, nasty, nasty people. Um, and he's, he's drawn right into that narrative. And that's how propaganda operated, not only in Germany, but in the countries around it, because atrocities were committed against the Jews in quite a number of countries that mm. were in Eastern Europe particularly. And part of that was this bias against the Jews, this anti-Semitic feeling that had run there underground and not so underground at times for centuries against the Jews, the killers of God, the ones that didn't accept Christianity. You know, they, they, rep, they came to represent the devil in some ways. And you've got this centuries-old bias not that far under the surface that allows you to easily buy the narrative that they want world domination, that they're taking their money off you, they're going to do horrible things to your daughters. You know, all the stuff we heard here is the sort of stuff you learn in Year 10 Second World War propaganda units. Um, it's just exactly the same things that were being said by the Vori about the Craden. And I guess that was a red flag for me too, Lindsay, when you say I'm watching it for the first time. I thought, hello, I've heard all of this before. <laughs> I heard all of this when, I, you know, when U10 studied uh, World War II and all the propaganda that was put out, it was almost identical to what the troops, the Bori troops were telling Chakotay. I mean, I think the other um, dynamic that's interesting here is that part of the bonding process is about um, being fellow warriors. And so at, at first, Chakotay is forced to uh, fight just to survive, but then gradually he becomes, uh, you know, a, a fellow warrior. Um, and it's, it's interesting how this sort of martial um, uh, connection is drawn on in culture generally. Um, so, you know, I mean, one, one of my favourite uh, series... Uh, is, is the West Wing, and um, we may have talked about, you know, the fact that there's one particular uh, episode of the West Wing that's very climactic, and at the end, um, as, as the uh, emotion is swelling, uh, the, the, the uh, Dire Straits song Brothers in Arms is played, um, you know, which is about literal brothers in arms in, in a wartime situation, but it becomes, you know, this sense of, uh, you know, the Democrats are the brothers in arms against the, the terrible Republican opposition. And, and it makes me think of how, again, in our, our Christian context, we have these martial hymns and uh, poems and uh, psalms and so forth uh, that, that we use to talk about how we are Christian soldiers fighting against the enemy, um, you know, and, and using... Uh, that sense of, of uh, camaraderie uh, in the trenches as a way of, of trying to bind people together, but binding them together in opposition to the enemy. And then we have to ask the question, you know, which side does God choose in all of this? You know, like, um, you know, when we have ultimate, you know, these these different uh, perspectives, um, you know, that, that uh, I guess the the... the the problem is that when we claim uh, an immaculate truth, um, that that uh, I think that's the beginning of the problem. When when perhaps uh, for me, when I look around at at, at the knowledge that I have, um, certainty becomes something that is a red flag for me. That that if I become absolutely certain of something, so it becomes the goal because we all want to be certain 
of what it is that we're hearing. But at the same time, when when certainty starts to exist in front of us without a doubt, um, perhaps it's time to actually start playing with doubt um, instead of seeking certainty. Well, I think anyone who claims that they've got the whole truth and nothing but the truth run a mile when it comes to religion because I just don't think the whole truth or even anything really approximating it can ever, you can never be certain about it unless we all become goldfish like that ad for that bank. I forget which bank it was. There was a little goldfish saying, all we need is certainty. And it kept repeating it because that's all the goldfish knew and it got to remember everything every 30 seconds or something like that. Um, it just seems to me if you're claiming certainty, you've stopped thinking. Yeah, people might be surprised to hear that I'm a, I'm a left-leaning um, yeah, person and um, that, that and progressive. But, but uh, I've been listening to the news recently, uh, and I'm and I'm I find myself almost celebrating as I'm hearing uh, inquiries into robo debt and uh, and needing to explore, you know, what the prime minister did when he took over all of these different portfolios. And I'm going, yes, this needs to be done. But I cast my mind back to the last time there was a change of election, and I thought to myself, why is it that uh, Julia Gillard and uh, and um, um, and other leaders are being hauled up in front of inquiries? You know, what's past is past, and we need to get on with the future. And I'm listening to those right-leaning supporters at the moment saying the same thing: the past is the past, and we need to be getting on with the future. And so, it seems that. That that when power shifts, our narrative can also shift, um, and and uh, and I mean, I guess I don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of you know who did what and who did where, but but there is this. What I'm analysing is myself in this situation and the way that I respond to the same story, but coming from a position of power that I happen to agree with. I'm happy to say yes, that's okay when it's my people. But no, that's not okay when it's not my people. And, and that's a really fascinating thing that gets raised by this as well. I mean, I think we have a, an infinite capacity to fool ourselves. And, and I mean, it's interesting to me that, that I saw this even in Chakotay early on where he's having these conversations with, with the Vori and... and uh, and trying to almost sort of mitigate against some of their, um, you know, bloodthirsty soldering or whatever. And, and he makes these comments about, oh, you know, where I come from, we, we don't deal with conflicts that way. We're all peaceful and fun-loving. And it's like, Chikotia, you you're a member of the Maquis, you know? What was that about? Yeah, I think that's... Um... The writers forgot that at that moment and Chakotay was living where he was in Voyager where they it's in their best interest to try and negotiate with anyone because having an all-out war with the Borg or species with the numbers is not going to end well. So, you know, negotiation seems to be a reasonable track that he would take at this point. Well, it was fascinating, though, that they covered that to, at least to some degree when they were saying... Uh, who do we hate? Who do we abhor? The nemesis. We abhor the nemesis, and so it's the in this case it's the Kraden who we who we hate. Now, if they look like Cardassians, then I think Chakotay would have very quickly shifted from that. So Chakotay himself is is fooled within his foolishness before he actually even arrived, because the Cardassians are his nemesis, and he he does hate the Cardassians, um, and. 
Um, and and so there there is that sense in which you know uh, if 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 we if we only hate one group of people because of what atrocious things they did, then we're still okay. We're not hateful. Um, if it's just one group of people. Um, and so he's trying to defend this to say, oh, we don't hate, we negotiate unless they're Cardassians in the same way that the Vori are saying our only nemesis is the Kraton. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's some, th there are layers of, of being fooled in this that we, we, I mean, the best kind of fool to, to, to have is the one who doesn't know they're being fooled. Um, well, I think it's the same situation I was talking about before with that deeply entrenched anti-Semitism that really did allow the Holocaust to happen. If you've seen atrocities or if you've been inculcated into believing that they've occurred and that you may be next, um, and I understand, though I haven't watched it, that Chakotay lost his family in the wars with the Cardassians and that's why he was so angry and joined the Marquis. You don't get over that sort of trauma. It's always going to be there. And you don't know what will trigger it or what will tap into that in a way. And I think, for me, Chikade probably was kind of kidding himself when he said we like to negotiate. Well, that's what Starfleet try and do, allegedly. Um, but for him, you know that, that that other trauma of his family being killed and fighting, and you know at some point it's going to take over, that it will service and that he will default to some of that given the situation he's in. Well, that's how I felt anyway. Um, just on a, 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 a totally, well, it's not entirely tangential, but I was uh, I was looking through, um, you know, my uh, quote of the week uh, notations, and, and one of them was where Chakotay is, is entirely uh, turned and uh, he, he attacks um, uh, one of the, um, whatever they're called, the Creighton, uh, and he says, you motherless beast, yeah. and, and I just laughed at that because it, it's just, I mean, it, it, it's such an interesting uh, sort of uh, epithet to throw. And in particular, I think it highlights this idea that we want to totally divorce the enemy from any sense of, you know, their people with mothers and fathers and children and siblings and whatever. They're just these beasts that appear, uh, you know, without connection or relationship or love or whatever, and, and so we're um, justified to attack and kill them. Yeah, I think that was meant to evoke that exact response, Lindsay. You know, they've been hatched. <laughs> I think the, um, the disregard for burial um uh rituals as well um it, so that means that it's worse than death um that there's a violation that actually is is it's, it's 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 not just about the fact that you might be killed by these but it's what they will do with you afterwards um and and how they will treat you in in death um that becomes an eternal um fear or torment as well and um i, I think you know there, there there's a these are all techniques that are actually used to, to, to say it's not just about what happens in life, but actually what uh, our tormentors will do to us in afterlife as well. Well, that really does hark back to, to biblical times. You know, the worst thing that could happen to your dead is they remain unburied and that they were left for the wild animals on the battlefield or, you know, the victims of, of, of a rape and pillage were just left and not buried. And that was seen as just awful. That impacted everything about what their afterlife could potentially be and it was dishonourable and it was just 
one of the worst things an enemy can do. So, of course, that's what enemies did because all of them seemed to feel that way. And if you read the Psalms, you find quite a lot of that through the Psalms with people lamenting things like the invasion of Jerusalem and saying that their enemies have, have just left them for food for wild animals, you know. And yeah, I, I, I was reminded of that with that um, particular death ritual where they had to be turned downward and the crane would deliberately stake them, well, in the simulation, stake them looking up so they couldn't turn or no one could turn them easily. Um, and I thought, well, that is the ultimate insult, is it not? Yes, and it's interesting that it's it's not in the Psalms just the lamenting of what enemies do to us, but actually uh, that kind of threat is used in some of the uh, the Psalms against enemies. Yeah. You know, may your bones be scattered and, and not properly buried and so forth. Yeah. And may the dogs get you. You know, the dogs will have their share is one line from one of the Psalms. Um, you know, so yes, it's a curse you basically bring down on someone's head. So we're all capable of this kind of violent foolishness, um, which which brings me to one of my quotes of the week, which comes from um, Tuvok while he's attempting to bring Chakotay to his senses. He says, you're a scientist, an explorer, you're not a killer. And so, I mean, we can take heart from that, that in history, explorers haven't been killers and that scientists have never done anything violent to anyone in the name of exploration. Um, like, that's just not true, isn't it? I mean, once again, even Tuvok's making use of propaganda in the midst of this, actually wanting to say, here are three categories of individual that are actually completely separate from each other, and we can be certain about scientists and explorers, um, and we don't want to be killers. So don't be a killer, be a scientist or an explorer. And it's once again an un un oversimplified simplification uh, attempting to draw or groom Chakotay back to a to a certainly right position I think that's a bit harsh I think scientists and explorers on the whole aren't paid mercenaries or killers and I, I could see the difference between where Chakotay was where he's actually being constricted to be exactly that not a scientist not an explorer not anything but a machine-like killer against this nemesis this beastly enemy so I, I think that's harsh to say that scientist and explorer are just the same propaganda. I don't think they are. I mean, they're certainly appealing to his reason and they're appealing to a part of him that's different from where he's currently descending. But I don't think I would put that in the same category. No, look, I, I disagree. I mean, I, I think I'm with Will on this one, Elizabeth. You know, I mean, if you look at um, uh, colonisation, that's exactly the kind of uh, propaganda that was used. We're, we're just here exploring this continent because there's no one here actually doing the good work of exploring it and, and making the most of it. And, uh, uh, you know, so that's why it's terra nullius and, uh, and we're, we're going to do the good job. And, you know, I mean, the... the Scientists, of course, they didn't mean anything by you know creating the atomic bomb. It's just a byproduct. It's not what they wanted to do, of course. Um, yeah, I take that point. I just meant in this context. I think that Tuvok is looking for something to pull Chakotay out of becoming what is in effect a trained mercenary. Of course he is. He's, he's attempting yeah. to craft a narrative to bring him back onto his side so that he'll actually start behaving in a in a rational and sensible way. 
well, he's not behaving in a rational and sensible way. And I'm I'm not going to say the Voyager way is as bad as the, the Bori way because it just isn't. No. Um, and you've got to have some values and put a line in the sand somewhere. And when you look at the lengths they've gone to to recruit Chakotay and the level of deception, you know, even if the other side use it, well, they're both to be condemned because to me that's just taking someone's free will completely away without them even knowing it's happening. So, you know... What else is Tuvok going to do? I think, though, we have to remember oh. that Tuvok was sent as an undercover agent into Chakotay's cell of the Marquis to track him down so that Janeway could go and arrest him. So if all went according to plan in episode one of Voyager, Janeway would have gone into the Badlands, not far from Deep Space Nine, grabbed the Marquis crew, brought Chakotay back to the Federation for Justice, and Chakotay would now be rotting in a Federation prison somewhere for the crimes that he has committed against um, the Federation. Um, th this this was the reason for the mission in the first place. The only reason why we've re rehabilitated Chakotay at all is because we need him, um, because Janeway actually um, is now desperate for crew in order to fly the ship back. Um, otherwise, it was her task to actually bring him to justice. I get that, but I know that if the circumstances changed and I like to think that Janeway was not so bloody-minded as a lot of blokes we would have seen to say, well, you're still going into the brig, all of you, and it'll be, you know, thrown out into deep space without an oxygen helmet at dawn. She actually says, all right, it's not just I need crew, but it's there's got to be some good in these people somewhere and I'm sure we can rehabilitate them if we show some trust and, and, you know, we find ways of actually engaging. The only failure in that really, in a sense, is Seska. She's the sort of outstanding one that, and she was always going to do that, being Cardassian, of course, and that stereotype. Yes, Cardassians. I understand, yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, I felt that Janeway could have made a different choice, but she went a certain way and mm. she believed enough in those people that they could be somehow redeemed, if you like. Now, it may be that her narrative wasn't the best one or even the right one, and theirs was better, but she found a way of creating an environment where they could get on together and realise some of their potential. So, you know, yay Janeway. Yeah, and even though, you know, a few years ago she didn't even know his name, now she can scarcely imagine a moment without him. That is exactly right. So, you know, stop being nasty. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think, I think you know, the, the point is that, that we can't make a moral equivalence between uh, every group of people and that every uh, circumstance of, of trying to develop community is necessarily a bad thing uh, and uh, not every argument is propaganda. Um, so, you know, I, I, I agree with, with, with you that, that um, Tuvok is trying to do something appropriate. I just think that... Uh, Will's comment about the use of language was an interesting one. I think one of the things that, that I find really um, uh, left with me after this episode is, is Chakotay's last line, which I know you also commented on in, in our chat yeah. uh, before. I wish it were as easy to stop hating as it was to start. And, and it brings back then the, the question about how do we rehabilitate people and how do we enable people to move on from uh, situations where they've perhaps been convinced to take on a very tribal and othering mentality uh, into being. 
uh, more inclusive into being people who, who can can love and move away from hate. And it's not easy, no. as Chikoka says. No. That was the most profound line to me. And ending it there with that look on Janeway's face um, when he says, I wish it was easy to stop hating as it was to start, you know. And then Will tells me they're not going to continue this trope. Oh, I'm outraged. No, the doctor's <laughs> waved his magic tricorder and Chakotay's all better. Just like in, uh, you know, uh, what is that? The eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. They just remove those memories that were actually a problem and uh, they can just go on from there. No, no, I don't agree with that. You can't we need a magic drop... tricorder. <laughs> oh, someone drops a line like that. You know, they're obviously in some degree of existential angst. I expect that to be pursued, and I am just gutted that it's not going to be. After four years, you you expect a continuing story from one place to another? I did. I did with that line because it's just left hanging, so I'm very disappointed you're telling me that's not going to be the case. This is the difference between older Star Trek and uh, more recent Star Trek. You know, if you had that line... Uh, in Discovery, it would then become the basis for a whole season. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, and, that's and right. Rightly so. Next week on Discovery, a Krenum Starfleet uh, cadet joins the crew and Chakotay has to work out how to deal with this, with his past hurts. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so it's a shame, I think, that this isn't going to be explored further because, you know, what you're saying is absolutely right. The only way I have found to even stop the other ring, like with refugees, I was in a um, rural congregation that largely voted for the National Party. They were really anti-votes. They voted for a person who would put Abbott in power. They they hated Abbott, but they hated Labor even more. Um, and, you know, they would talk about these people in ways that I thought were dreadful. So John and I organised a seminar and we got a South Sudanese refugee who'd come from one of the camps. Um, in Africa, and we've got John Jacote from the Uniting Church, um, who had John Jigasothi, sorry. Um, I was going to say, we yeah, should get him on. <laughs> um, came to talk about what it was like to be a Tamil boat person. And by the end of it, it really shifted people. And it's because they'd never met refugees before in their little sheltered National Party voting rural town. And to get someone to come, and talk to them about what it was like and why they did what they did and what the whole thing was and then stay and have afternoon tea with them afterwards, it shifted. So othering changes. It didn't change for Jakoto because he's been too brainwashed. Um, but it can change when you actually start to form relationship with these people and you eyeball them and you hear their story and you suddenly realise, well, they're not the devil incarnate. They're not here to take my jobs. They're not here and they've actually left awful, awful situations where their houses were burned down or they were being hunted and, you know, what are we doing? And even when I reminded the fundamentalists in that congregation, the Bible says countless times to look after the alien, to make them welcome. Remember, you were aliens, you know, and do that. Even when you do that, that had no impact. It was actually meeting the people and hearing their stories. Mm. And I think when we're talking about a, a, a propaganda narrative, a, a fear-based propaganda narrative, that that kind of process um, is is a way forward. But but what the Vori do here, the atrocity that the Vori equi- a, a commit with Chakotay is that they simulate a traumatic experience for yeah. him. 
that's actually ex- engaging with all of his senses um, and and his intuition at the same time. And I mean, I I I, I had a traumatic experience a few years ago where I was I was beaten, and the person who 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 beat me had very strong um uh roll your own cigarettes smell to 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 him wherever he went because he was he, he smoked a lot of those kind of cigarettes and and even today i have an involuntary response to to run or defend myself whenever i actually get that smell um and and i, I had it happen just the other day and i and i and, and i thought to myself it's been years um since that's actually occurred and and uh if you were to ask me to verbalize my situation, I would tell you I'm, I'm over it. And uh, I'm, I'm as a thinking rational person, I've worked my way through it. I've had therapy and support. And yet there is still a, an instinctive defense response that's come from that trauma. And the Vori are attempting to invest that response in the people so that they actually act before thinking and militaries around the world all do that. They don't want you to think. They want you to, 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 to carry out your orders and pull the trigger without without thought because thought will slow the process down. Well, I think that's... Well, I'm struck dumb because, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that, uh, that's part of what we do and, and I think, you know... Uh, we need to question that. How how can we both live in a violent world and appropriately defend those who need defending, but without falling into uh, the the trap of saying the only way to do that is to take away your ability to think or consider or, or to view the other person uh, as person, uh, and instead to respond instinctually. Uh, and just see them as enemy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it is an atrocity, that we're, uh, that language that Will used, that um, they do actually build on what's already there as a traumatic thing with Chakotay. And they develop it into a whole thing that sucks him right in and sees him ready to probably stay there for the term of his natural life, um, shooting at this species that he has no actual gripe with. As, as it were. There's a really interesting um, other quote that Chakotay makes early on where um, he's talking to one of the Vori and they're talking about hating the nemesis and he says, hate's not something I understand very well. Um, and, and, and I wonder if actually that's... I mean, I agree that he's, he's self-deluded there, but I wonder if actually... Part of part of what helps us is actually to grow in our awareness of hate and how it works and the mechanisms of hate, so that we can guard ourselves against falling uh, automatically and immediately into the trap of uh, othering someone who looks or sounds different from us, or uh, hating the person who, um, you know, as Christ says, even we're meant to love our enemies. So you know. Uh, the more we understand the language and the uh, mechanisms of hate, uh, perhaps the better we are uh, protected from just falling into that language and those mechanisms. 
I think that's true. And I think that we're, that's where critical thinking is such an important skill, which is why we've made art degrees costing $100,000 now by the time you add all the interest from having a student loan, you know, because that's the, the one degree that actually taught critical thinking. So, yeah, what are we doing to our society and what are we losing? Because if we can't actually have the capacity to untangle propaganda, to untangle fact from fiction, to have a look at what's an emotive response and what is obviously building on something like Will mentioned, that particular smell, he gets a knee-jerk reaction to it. To understand that is why rather than just smelling it and hitting someone. Mm. Some would say that's a very woke response that you're actually putting in there. Um, oh, well, uh, tough, tough one. But I find that word even fascinating because isn't it interesting that when we are attempting to create a, uh, a subgroup of people who are like us, that we do actually create language. Uh, and so words like woke and others actually start to become um, a, an insider understanding. Um, but, but this idea that, that to be awake, um, to have our eyes open, to be able to, to fathom uh, the, uh, with our glimpse um, what's really going on, um, is is a bad thing. Um, is is something that is propagated within um, parts of our society, and I and, and I, I I struggle with that. Um, I I would have thought being awake, being able to see, being able to understand, comprehend, and ask questions is is actually a vital part of being being alive. Absolutely, and I think their capacity to be self reflective and to think critically and to analyse stuff and to be able to pull apart what you're emoting on and what is reasonable is a absolutely vital tools to understand the world in which we live and move. And if that means being woke, then so be it on woke. And if being lefty means, you know, I'm a compassionate, caring person that tries to understand why people act the way they do and to be act with kindness and fairness, then so be it. I'm just mm. one of those dreadful lefties. Your snowflake. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's face it, the whole of Star Trek is, is you know, endemically leftist. Uh, I mean, I, I don't understand people who, who criticise uh, modern Star Trek and say, oh, it's all too woke or whatever, because it has always been a vehicle for, for bringing a sense of uh, communalness, of caring for all, of inclusiveness, of hoping for a society where uh, people aren't left behind. You know, and we might critique certain aspects of it, but um, that, that's always been the big picture hope uh, and one of the things that attracts me to Star Trek. Absolutely. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with having ideals where people are equal and where people can live together in peace and harmony? What's wrong with that? Especially if you can actually put challenge in the midst of that so that you've got um, this idea that pro the prophetic imagination is actually about an, a mix of celebrating what's possible and being prepared to explore what is utopian and at the same time challenging that which will take us down a dystopian line. And, and I think that, that, that most science fiction actually does this really, really well. And even the most dystopian science fiction that exists is often, um, I guess, a parody of what right-wing uh, perspectives might be. Um, so it's uh, I, I, in terms of science fiction, 
Um, you don't even need to know anything about Star Trek to actually enjoy this episode. This is a great episode if you wanted to introduce somebody to to Star Trek. Um, you could watch this as a standalone, which is another thing that I actually really enjoyed about it. You could, and there'd be some. There's so much to think about it. They say they wanted to make it a little bit thinky or some such thing um, when you look at the stuff at the bottom, but it's more than a little bit. It's a whole lot of stuff that you can think about here, and it has such relevance to some really significant events in the history of our world, not only at a macro level, but also a micro level and how people view refugees or how people view different coloured skin or whatever it is that their other is. There's a lot of food for thought here, and it doesn't make you woke. It makes you human when you actually mm. contemplate this stuff. Now, I, I know we're sort of drawing towards the close and I can't let uh, the uh, episode finish without uh, giving a little shout-out to Megan Murphy, who is the actor who plays uh, Carrier, the young um, uh, girl in the village, because I, I, I really enjoyed her character. I thought she was uh, such, such a, a nice character and um, enjoyed the interaction with Chakotay and the way in which he... Uh, takes on that that protective role uh, with her, so I, I thought um, great little great little piece by uh, that actor Megan Murphy. Yeah, I agree. It was a nice role, and it brought out some of the best features of Jakodae. Somewhat ironically, of course, because those good characteristics of Jakodae are actually being used as a weapon against him, which is another interesting thing. How you take the best of someone and weaponize it, which is exactly what the Boro do. But, yeah, it was a nice little cameo that she had, Lindsay, I agree. Uh, so a little bit of trivia. This episode was originally supposed to be called The Recruit, um, but uh, they went with Nemesis instead. That uh, was actually um, filmed over eight days, which is actually a very short filming time um, because they, they needed to be on site, um, and so they had uh, they had a lot of sets that they needed to do um, externally. Um, and, um, the other thing that I found fascinating about this episode, um, is the, that they actually, um, they aired this episode out of sequence. So I, I have no idea why I was looking everywhere to try and find out, but the next episode was actually originally designed to actually appear, uh, in this slot, so episode four, and this one was actually filmed as the fifth episode. Um, and you can tell that because the beginning of next week, um, after the dinner party scene, um, we have a conversation between um, Tom Paris and um, and Balana Torres where they say, it's been three days since um, you proclaimed your I love you um, in, in, um, due to lack of oxygen. And clearly Chakotay was missing for far more than three days. Um, yeah. And so so you've got a time discontinuity between this, and that's because of the release of episodes. Next week's episode was supposed to be released um, in this slot uh, rather than the other. I'll bear that in mind when I watch it. Thank you. Mm. I, I couldn't help noticing that they uh, lost yet another shuttle. Yes, um, I noticed I that. <laughs> Know that they've lost 
shuttle in the episode. Mm. That's okay. They've got a shuttle replicator. They just they just uh, 3D print them down in the uh, cargo base. It's great. I was thinking they must be doing something like that because you keep bringing it up and I thought the same thing as Lindsay. What? There goes another shuttle. <laughs> another shuttle. That. Yep, that's right. Yep. Well, you know what they could do is just replicate shuttles um, anytime they need a new warp core because shuttles come with a warp core and they can go to warp. So, you know, um, um, in fact, they could, uh, if they ever had problems with the ship, they could just replicate 100 shuttles and then sort of glue them all together so they could fly home in that. So. <laughs> um, oh, yes. Uh, next week, um, hold on to your hat for next week. Uh, probably one definitely to read the synopsis early, um, Elizabeth. Uh, lots of tension, um, fear and intensity uh, in next week um, as we uh, encounter an isomorphic projection, um, which is just a fancy name for a hologram. Um, and Harry Kim has to watch someone else get promoted. Again. Hmm. Yep. Well, it Poor doesn't Harry. sound good. I mean, it's called revulsion. Mm, yep. That's really setting a tone, isn't it? Oh, and the tone just keeps going from there. It's uh, it's actually a really a- exceptional episode and um, uh, give us a lot to think about next week. Till then, uh, this has been uh, Void Journey, our theological journey through the Delta Quadrant, and I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Elizabeth Rain. <laughs>